This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Try to put on the show. show, show, show. Well, I think I think there's a possibility of fanning Miss Flames. Mike Richards, who had been hired as the new Jeopardy host and what is one of the great all-time end-run sleight-of-hand grifts that we've ever seen, the executive producer of the show oversaw a process in which he himself was hired ahead of many much more famous people. Aaron Rodgers, who served as a guest host, he told Adam Shane uh, that he absolutely would have taken the job if it was available. So I think we need to get word to Aaron Rodgers that this job is now open again, and maybe we can get him out of, out of Packers training camp. Yeah, look, network television has the money. They can make this happen. You want to get hit in the mouth by opposing defensive carnivores, or would you prefer to ask questions? Aaron, Brian Gutekunst doesn't like you. He hates you. Remember, he drafted Jordan Love. He, he hasn't drafted anybody to help you out on the offensive side of the football in 8,000 years. Come on, man. It is. I, I, don't, I don't know if we're giving enough, uh, enough credit or recognition to the, the, the feat that Mike Richards almost pulled off, though. Because he's quit, and if anybody's followed the story, it's because, um, it's because of uh, several insensitive things that he has said over the course of his uh, podcast he had and other stuff. But really, he hired himself. <laughs> there were all these famous Legends. people that wanted for the job, and he's like, "Yeah, no, no. The guess what? The new host is me." <laughs> it was, and he almost got away with it if it wasn't for you kids. I didn't even know who he was. Yeah, me neither. No clue who the dude was. <laughs> what a You're rise! Like, who? Who they hired? He's like, "Oh, he hired himself." Like, wow, wow, that's incredible. He almost pulled it off too. It's time for Michael Bumpus. Let's get him in here for Blue Forty Two. Here we go. This is Blue 42. We're going to go red, right, tight, close, sprint left, G, U corner, half back, flat, on two. Ready, right. Now here's your host, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Blue 42. Blue 42. <laughs> Michael Bumpus, preseason game number two is upon us, and hopefully we will actually see the offense in action. Yes, it is upon us. I don't know how much of the offense we will see. We will see a offense, but I'm not <laughs> sure if we'll see too much of the starters. I hope it's a offense that doesn't see Geno Smith die, but that is uh, just me. Please, Geno Smith, if you're uh, back out there after the concussion, look to your left and your right before uh, stepping up under center. But, but this is a theory that I heard proposed by a, a sports talk show in another city. With the way that training camp has changed and with the way that the Seahawks seem to be operating this preseason where their starters, at least on the offensive side of things, have all been off on the sideline, do you think teams now maybe view the first month of the season, which is now a 17-game season, sort of like the preseason, maybe similar to the way that we see college football? There's a ramp up with the first couple of games where all those Power 5 schools play directional five Altoona states. Do you think that now that maybe that's being viewed as the preseason, the first quarter of the year? No, I don't think so. I think that every game in the NFL is important, right? You can't just mail it in against the New York Jets because if you slip up, the Jets will get you. You can't just mail it in against, like, the Jaguars. If you slip up, the Jets will get you. Ask the Indianapolis Colts last year. With the with college football, there's such a disparity between the, the greats and the average, the have and the have not. So 
So it sounds good in theory. You know, it, it makes sense when you're trying to when you're taking care of your football players. But in reality, every week counts in the NFL. So crucial. So no, nah, I think they got to take it serious. But it's all about the preseason now. I think now the preseason has less value for these starters. But as soon as week one starts and you see NFL kickoff on that uh, on the on the gridiron on every field that first two weeks, it's time to go. Now, for Seattle, this I would consider maybe the second or third year that Pete has dialed back some of the reps for the starters. Russell Wilson didn't play in the preseason opener in 2019. They didn't have preseason games last year. Russell didn't play in the preseason opener. This year, we'll see if he plays on Saturday against Denver. The past two years, Seattle has gotten off to better starts than it usually does. It doesn't usually, under Pete Carroll in the 10 years or 11 years now that are under him, they don't usually win their first road game. They did each of the past two years. Coincidence or trend, Michael Bumpus? I think it's a trend. I think Pete Carroll has been able to come up with a travel formula, a mentality that these guys kind of just buy into. When I was with the Hawks, we flew to New York, and it was almost like we all knew it was over. It was something about that trip, something about uh, the feeling. It just didn't feel right. But with these Seahawks, the Pete Carroll Seahawks, as of late, like you mentioned, um, they're confident. And I don't know if it's a message that Pete Carroll is sending to these guys. I don't know if it's the way they're preparing. He's leaving early on some trip, something in the itinerary. I think it's a trend. I think that's who they are. So we should expect these guys to come out and be ready to go week one against the Colts. Question two. Special teams for sociopaths? Bump, I want you to listen to this quote. It's from Ryan Neal, who's a very fun interview, Seattle's backup safety, talking about the kind of mentality that his teammates who are good on special teams exhibit. I'm standing next to Cody Barton, who's off in the head. Nick Bloor is off in the head. Um, <laughs> I mean, every great special teams person is off in the head because, I mean, it's the only part of the game for real, for real where you have the least amount of assignments and it's, okay, go run and hit the first thing you see moving. So, literally, you have to kind of be jacked up on special teams. I mean, that's just the way it is, you know. It's, you get one shot, you know what I mean, like kickoff punt, you get one shot to even make a tackle. So, it's like all 11 of those dudes are going nuts. Like It's like, okay, I'm going to be the first one down there. I got to be the first one down there. I got to make the tackle. So, you're just going to see a bunch of dudes just hair on fire looking to run through anything. So, yeah, you kind of got to be a little crazy to be on special teams. Is he accurate? That's as real as it gets, Danny. <laughs> you got to have <laughs> some screws loose down there. I mean, just think about it, especially on kickoff, right? Now, you talk about kickoff 10, 15 years ago when I was playing, it was even worse. Your assignment is to run down and just blow stuff up. You got to run full speed and collide with another human being. Unless you are catching the football and you are a returner, you're making moves, you got to lay it on the line. Listen to the names that he mentioned out there. Cody Barton. You look in Cody Barton's eyes, and you know he's down for whatever. But, Lord, do plays fullback, a dying position. You know he's got to go down and bang. If you are going to be a tackler on special teams, you got to have a couple screws loose. And that's why you see number 30s, 40s, and 50s that dominate <laughs> that side of the ball. That means you had a couple of screws loose then, Mr. Returner. You know, in a way. I wasn't hitting nobody, but I was down there catching the football right in the middle of a stampede. I mean, that, I would think, involves just a couple of screws being loose there. Especially, I mean, maybe over time you get used to something like that, but I, I feel like punt returner, maybe you're not running into a wall or creating a wedge on a kickoff return. Still, though, 
I mean, you got to catch a ball while there might be people right in your face, somehow make a move, turn up field, and not just that, but also turn it into a special play every time that you get the ball in your hands. You just, you got to want to make a play at all costs. Then you got to be okay with getting hit. I guess that's why you see a lot of slot receivers doing these pump returns. One, because we got great hands, and two, because we're good going across the middle. You know, we're all right with contact. So, in that sense, yeah, there's, there's something there's something going on upstairs, Paul. I did a story once on the hardest jobs in, in, in football. Like, what were the toughest things to do? And this was 2005, so they still had wedge, like the blocking wedge. Wedge breaker was one of the was was one of the suggestions. And John Howell, who was a backup safety at the time, uh, who was very good, I asked him, "Is being a wedge breaker hard?" And he said, "Well, define hard." He's like, "Because it's not complicated." He's like, "You you could get a monkey to do that job. The only question is whether he follows through <laughs> on the moment of impact or not." And I was like, "That is a that is a great like. It's not a an intellectually." challenging task it's just how little regard do you have for your own body exactly there's no special scheme to it is do you have the heart do you do you have the uh the <laughs> the intensity to go down and just wreck stuff wreck it ralph you got a bunch of wreck it ralph on kickoff <laughs> wreck it ralph watch that movie i think i got to question number three Bob, a little bit ago, we asked if Ugo Amadi is the breakout star of this Seahawks training camp. We know you've liked what you've seen out of Freddie Swain. Are there any other players other than Freddie that have jumped out over the last couple of weeks as we head into the Seahawks' second preseason game? Yeah, I mean, Ugo obviously is big. Freddie Swain has been big. And now I look at Daryl Taylor, man. I was really impressed with what he did during the the game last week during you know during camp he flashed a little bit but you can't really appreciate his assignments and what he's there to do until you get the pads on and once i saw him with the pads on i was like this young man can play he can get off the football he's good in space i can only imagine what he's going to look like four five six weeks from now when he's really comfortable and understands his assignment so the defensive side of the ball i feel like has been where a lot of these breakout guys are, even like Benberg, Curve, and Cody Barton, guys that we're probably not going to see a lot during the during the regular season, but they've had opportunities to show. Look, if given an opportunity, I can be serviceable. But I'm looking at Daryl Taylor, man. I-, I love what he brings to the team. He's fearless. He's young. He's explosive. Um, again, I'm excited to see how he develops over the past three, four weeks. Bump, what are you most looking forward to? What do you What do you expect? And I guess today this. What do you expect to see from the Seahawks offense on Saturday? You know, I expect to see efficiency in the pass game. I think now they have some film. Now Shane Waldron has live film to critique and help these guys get better. It's hard when you're critiquing against your own team. You're not going 100%. Guys are letting you live. They're keeping you up. Now you have actual film, film where guys are trying to beat you, film where guys are trying to win. And now he it allows him to coach differently as well. So I expect his offense to be a bit more efficient. I don't know about throwing the ball down the field and all these, all these explosive plays. We'll see who's available when it comes to personnel. But I think we're going to see an offense that understands what Shane Waldron wants, and they're at least going to be able to execute a bit better than they did in the first half last week. I'd like him to run the ball a little bit more. I mean, one of the more frustrating elements of that game was just how quick in and out the Seahawks were. I think they what, threw on their first 10 plays or something like that. And with 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 Geno Smith under center, I, I I don't really know what you're building towards if you're throwing with Geno Smith. I, I would like to see some of these running backs get looks, and obviously there's a concern about injury, but 
specifically tomorrow night, I, I hope that we see a lot of Rashad Penny because Penny is someone that I, I feel like if he's going to be at his best this coming season, he's got to take a couple of those hits, I'd imagine, to feel confident that that knee is still going to be stable underneath him. Otherwise, you could end up seeing him being a little bit tentative when he goes back in there. No, I'm with you, Paul. I would love to see them run the ball more. I think that first game, they had an agenda. and said, look, we want to really see what this pass game looks like. And, you know, you're right. Rashad Penny is back. He's got to prove himself. And he's got to feel it himself, right? There's nothing like, you know, being tentative and coming off an injury. You need to feel the pass crack again. You need to feel what it's like to be in a football game, fall on the ground, get up. So mentally, you tell yourself, I'm okay. I'm healed. I can play this game. But, yeah, I want to see more balance, right? I saw like Pete Carroll now. What's balance? It's not 50-50, but it's just a mix of both run and pass. And we didn't see that until the second half. And it was almost like the first half they committed to the run. Excuse me, the pass. Second half they committed to the run. Now I hope to see a nice mix. And I want to see a rotation at that running back spot. I want to see Penny. I want to see Alex Collins. And I think DJ Dallas um, earned himself some runs as well. DJ Dallas! Bump, we always appreciate your time. We, we enjoy it. We, we hope you have a fantastic Friday, and we'll look forward to talking to you. You're going to be in on Monday, which should be a blast. I'll be in Monday, guys. Appreciate you. All right. That is Michael Bumpus, uh, Blue 42. Our training camp coverage is brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. And remember, we will be giving away uh, tickets to the preseason game. That's coming up at some point later uh, in the show, and we're going to give away Seahawks preseason tickets in each of our shows today. We'll shift back to the Mariners, who had uh, finished off their first sweep in Texas of the Rangers since 2015. And after the game, I thought Scott Service and sort of his connection to this team kind of became became very clear. It's what I found most moving, both his reaction to the to the game when they won, when 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 Jacob Fraley tracks down that fly ball in center field, and you saw Service react with. It was kind of that heck yeah kind of energy. It wasn't just a thank goodness, oh my gosh. Well, like there was a yeah, we did it. And then afterward, even even getting choked up, he's a very different manager than I expected Seattle was getting in when they hired him six years ago. We'll explain that in just a second. But here's Scott Service after yesterday's game, kind of what, what his reaction, why it meant so much to him. Just me personally letting him know, you know, how proud I am of this group. It's a it's a special group, it really is. That's a long day. So, uh, pardon me for getting a little emotional, but I really love this team. I really do. Sure was a long day, but I can see why he loves this team because somehow they get through these games, or they bounce back from games where they get bludgeoned, smacked around, or have incidents like they've had a couple of five blown leads since the trade deadline. Yeah, the bullpen has not done them any favors. When Scott Service was hired, he was Jerry Depoto's. He was Jerry Depoto's selection. He'd never been a field manager before, and I remember there was a guy that I've known uh, for a number of years. Our paths have crossed a couple times, though I don't think we've ever actually worked together. But he's baseball covered baseball for twenty five years, and I asked him about the new GM, new manager. Just like, what do you think? And he talked about how open and and warm Jerry Depoto was. And then he indicated that Scott Service is kind of a jerk. He used a different word for that. And in baseball reporters, that's not it's not a criticism. It's an observation because there are there are baseball lifers who are just kind of like they're intense dudes. There is a very specific type of baseball grump that's out there. 
and that person is not overly friendly. They're they're they've got an edge to everything they do. And for for someone like Service who carved out a major league career, I thought that that intensity is probably what he needed to to stay in the big leagues to have the career that he had. That he wasn't somebody that gave anything away. That it could be kind of tough to be around. Like there's there's lots of different terms that baseball people have for it. Whether it's having a red behind. Which is which is one of the more common ones. It's just an irritable and kind of generally unpleasant kind of personality, and that can be a useful cog in a team. That's the personality I thought Seattle was going to have as a manager. I thought they were going to have somebody who was hard driving, really didn't accept much in the way of excuses, and was was kind of difficult and abrasive. I couldn't have been more wrong, and. In the, in the six years that Scott Service has been here, he's been given a really complicated job. It's changed. He inherited a team with four really high-paid veterans in Nelson Cruz, Robinson Cano, Felix Hernandez, and Kyle Seeger, and was told, okay, we're going to try to get younger around them, but we're going to try to get to the playoffs building it around those four guys. And after three years in which they had the fifth best record in the American League that time, so they, if your goal was to get a wild-card berth, they figures you would have had it in one of those years. The way it worked out, they never, they never got a wild-card berth. They, never, they had the fifth-best overall record, yet never had the fifth-best record in one of those seasons. And then they rebuild. And Scott's service through it all has been this warm, engaging personality who you feel creates a really intense bond with his players. You have to and, adapt as a coach, and, and I think that's probably why, right? I mean, if you've had these young players that you're working with for a couple of seasons, after a while, you're probably going to realize that the old way didn't work. It is interesting that you note, though, Danny, all of the different kind of teams that he has managed. And to go back in time to 2018, maybe, ask service about that team and what it taught him going forward – I'm sure that there are some lessons learned along the way. You're going to be, I would imagine, a little bit more attached to a team full of younger players, though. Probably. Your word's going to have a little bit more of an impact on them. They're going to respond to that a little bit more. Yeah, I could see that. And there's not really an established player, let's say, a Robinson Cano or right. someone else who you Felix, look at. Felix was the one where you have to navigate around him. Like, let, that dude's contract's big enough. He's not going anywhere. I guess Seeger a little bit, but Seeger's, Seeger's, Seeger plays every day. Seeger's, Seeger's someone that's, that's dependable and reliable. We, we've had that question about whether or not coaches have a shelf life on this very show before. Yes. And they do, but it depends on how many of the same players are with them over a long period of time. For example, in Boston, Terry Francona and that Red Sox team, they were great together, but they were all together for a really long period of time. And I think that a degree of comfort settles in for either the manager or the players, and you saw how it sort of unfolded in 2011. So with this team, now that it's completely different from the teams of the past, where you got a bunch of young guys who don't know really anything other than what Scott Service is as a manager, it's actually a, a, a hidden benefit here. And it's also a reason to extend him because you want this to keep going going forward as opposed to bringing somebody else in who has to feel all these guys out, who has to win their respect, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that would be an uphill battle for for anyone else who comes in, especially with all the things that they've been through this year. The reason you should extend him, the reason why he deserves a significant raise, the reason why he should be considered one of the candidates for manager of the year is embodied in his reaction to that game. It's embodied to him getting choked up by that. 
that feeling of pride that he feels to coach, to manage a team that is exhibiting the toughness that it's not even like, hey, I made them that tough. It's that like, I can't believe how tough these guys are, that he's inspired by the way that they're playing with all of the different things that they've been through, all of the injuries along their pitching staff. And oh, by the way, this is a team that, that Mather, this was a team that started out Kendall Graveman trade, all of those things. And this was a team that started out with people around baseball saying they're rebuilding. They're going to win 75 games. They're going to win 78 games. They're the worst team in baseball, like John Heyman. And to be where they are, 10 games above 500, and to have your manager feeling that way about the way his players are playing, about the way the culture that is, that's why, that's why you extend him. Because yeah. you want somebody like that in charge of this team. He has their backs, and he does, I think, a very good job in a difficult situation, which is to, I think, keep players of the mindset that whatever might be going on upstairs, whether it's Kevin Mather or, or, or anything else, it is removed entirely from what we do on the field. And when you have a team that has had a 20-year playoff drought, I, you, you, it, that kind of a buffer is important. And how much of a buffer service is? Well, I mean, we'll find out, I, I imagine, during the offseason in terms of how people truly feel about with this team, if they want to stay with it, in, in spite of perhaps some of the things that have been said or implied going forward. You know, like, for example, Kyle Seeger's future, uncertainty about Mitch Hanniger's future. But he has done, I think, an incredible job of navigating through all of this. And while, yeah, his job is essentially to do what the general manager tells him, it's also to be not necessarily a psychologist, but the kind of person who is going to keep everything even keeled because it's a long season and you're going to have disastrous moments like series against San Diego where you get absolutely destroyed and you have to step up right after they happen. Some people argue you argue you, you pick a manager for a specific team. I think Scott service in his six years here has shown that he is a manager that you pick for a franchise because you want the way he interacts with players He's had a veteran team that was trying to sneak into the playoffs. He's had a young team in which you're building toward the future. And in each case, he's shown the ability to, to get results from, from those kind of players, all the while keeping the younger players who you want to be growing around because that is the, the secret in baseball, is getting young, capable, improving, cost-controlled players while keeping them developing with you. And this year should be an, an absolute affirmation of that. The question for me isn't, do you keep him? The question is, how, how far do you go to make sure you keep him? Because he's done so much. He's, he's, he has been the person that is, in a lot of ways, sort of watching how this team has weathered. If we give them credit for the resilience, the manager, the manager above and beyond the players, is the first person in line for that. Credit the players for the way that they've come back. Credit the manager for creating the environment in which they have bounced back. I'm curious as to what happens as far as ownership and how they handle this. I saw in a piece with Ryan Divish in the Seattle Times where he was asked, hey, what's going on? Why haven't we seen a Jerry DePoto extension? And on the same lines, why haven't we seen a Scott Service extension? And I, I do wonder if maybe it is something like money that could be the issue. Again, I don't know the specifics, but that was one of the theories that was floated there. And it is surprising that nothing has been decided yet. Because I feel like even with 40 games left, who's 
who's thinking to themselves, no, they can't go with this next year for either of those two? I don't think anybody feels that way. And there are unknowns that we have in terms of the timing, and it might be a matter of their waiting to announce it. But I certainly hope, and I think everybody in Seattle is hoping that, that he is back. It is Danny and Gallant. Coming up next, it's time for us to be put to some decisions. Do you get with this or do you get with that? That's ahead. You are listening to Danny and Gallant. Powered through the Alaska Airline Studios. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Here she goes, yo. Here she goes. Here she goes, yo. Here she goes. It's time for Mora to give us some topics. And we tell you, do we get with this or do we get with that? Do we get with this? But that is kind of fat. What are our questions? What <laughs> do we got, poet. Maura? All right. Uh, I brought this up in our show email yesterday, and uh, Danny kind of thought it made sense. Um, Jamal About Jamal Adams and J.P. Crawford being similar in the way that they you know, bring intensity and hype up their teammates to play their best every day. So if you had to choose one as your teammate, who are you taking, J.P. Crawford or Jamal Adams? Hmm. Well, who's going to get the most out of you? I think that Jamal Adams' constant energy is going to get slightly more out of you than J.P. Crawford, who is a steady presence. Because I feel like Adams is also going to probably get on your nerves a bit because he is just so relentlessly energetic. I'd want that. It varies person to person, though. I I don't think there's one right way or another. And I think there's a lot of people out, out there that would say, you know, Crawford's pretty measured, chill, relaxed, cool. This is probably a better everyday working experience. But for me, give me Adams. I want somebody to make me feel like I need to be playing like a psycho at every single moment that I'm out on the field. I agree with you, too. It is Adams, and I completely agree with the diagnosis. Adams is the kind of person that would drive Bob Stelton and Dave Wyman kind of crazy. (laughs) Just constant, loud explosions of energy. (laughs) Never quietly enters a room. That's certainly the kind of personality that I enjoy the most. J.P. Crawford is kind of smooth, right? Like, he's energetic, He's but there's a smoothness to him. He plays defense smooth. There's nothing—Jamal Adams is a freight train. You would probably want to hang out more with J.P. Crawford. Yes. Unless you are really in the mood for one intense night <laughs> with Adams. I have always liked people that will mix it up more. I have always enjoyed people that I refer to as kind of the wild card, the person who has the pin pulled on the grenade and is going to, well, let's see what happens here. Cause yeah, that, that, that is, that is the J- Jamal Adams personality. One Whereas of my favorite J- pictures is from last year when he was out hurt and he posted a picture of himself at home, standing in front of the TV with his helmet on watching the game. Yeah. There's some other things there too. <laughs> yes. It was great. It's another That's reason. exactly how he watched the game with a helmet on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just a helmet. And you know, there's something that I, I feel like I would want to go to Vegas with Jamal Adams. Like I feel like one day he is going to he's going to help me fight to the yeah. finish. He is going to keep me awake for 24 hours plus. All right, next up, Ty France joined us yesterday, and he explained that he's always kind of having friendly conversations with guys at first base while while he's out there on defense. Um, if you were at first, would you kill them with kindness or would trash talk be your choice? I'd mess with dudes. Like, I, I 
Yeah, I would. I would not. I would not. I would not kill them with kindness. I. I would try and say things that would make them wonder if it was a compliment or a barb. Yeah, I. I. I definitely mix it up. Am I allowed to shut up? Am I allowed to? Do, do I have yeah. to pick one or the other? Okay, yeah, I would you can be quiet. Very, I'd be completely quiet because really? I feel like. Oh yeah, I feel like I'd have to. Well, first off, if I'm at first base, I mean, let's be honest, I'm really fast. I'm going to steal second. I need to be at constant attention at all times, and I feel like. Talking trash or talking with the first baseman is just going to give the pitcher on the mound. No, but you are the first baseman. Oh, I'm the first baseman. My bad. Yeah. Same thing. I feel like I need to focus. I nah, feel like I, I, I'm I, messing with him. I'm asking him. You sure? You could probably get another step. Really? You you're that worried about this guy picking you off? You're you're gonna be stay that close? Like oh, you're awfully far off the bag right there. I don't know, man. I don't know. This guy's got a pretty good pickoff. Move. I would I would constantly be doing that stuff. I, I don't I don't. I would need to be on edge at all times, and that would loosen the edge. I, I don't think I would want that because I feel like I could – if I were Ty France and I'm having these conversations with guys, there's a real chance that I'm going to fall asleep at the wheel. It would be my goal to get somebody to punch me at some point in the game, like just to stand up. And you never see that. Like you never <laughs> see a fight on the base paths, and I'm not sure why. Like why Why does a guy never like, okay, I've heard enough. I'm going to sock you in your jaw. I, I think I could push someone to that state. You would be the C.J. Gardner-Johnson of Major Yes, League exactly. <laughs> exactly. What did he say when he was asking about, like, I, I don't like it. I don't like nobody. Yeah, they asked yeah, him they... why he always has issues and uh, with, with guys, and he said, I don't like people. Yeah! <laughs> there we go. I don't like people. I love it. All right, guys. Well, we uh, mentioned this earlier. We found out this morning that Mike Richards, the guy who hired himself as Jeopardy host, is stepping down. <laughs> I'm tasking you with choosing a new host from the coaching world. So would you choose someone that would be, I don't know, probably a little bit mean to the contestants, like a Belichick or a Popovich or a fun one, like Pete Carroll, John Gruden, Herm Edwards? Mean. I want confrontation. (laughs) I want a Simon Cowell-esque figure up there who is just going to eviscerate these people when they get it wrong. Because these people are the smartest people in any room that they're in. They're smarter than me watching on television. So I want them taken down a peg or two to make me feel better about myself. Yes, I'm a petty, small-minded person. What would Belichick's tactic be here? Would he would he take the, I'm just going to say as little as possible? Because I feel like that's his general calculation with press conferences. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think Belichick would necessarily be good in this spot. Come on. Right? Depending on how he got it. Like, he He's could, a history I, buff. Yeah, I could see him having the most command of the trivia. Herm would be really fun, but he would be trying to fire upon, like the, the contestants up. Like, come on, you know this. You know this. You're playing to win the game. Can you imagine if somebody bet $0 in, in, in uh, Final Jeopardy? They bet $0 to Coast. You play to win the game. I'm sure that he would walk up to them and drop his book on their desk. He wrote a book called that. You play to win the game. <laughs> Hello? Popovich would be annoying. I, I've always, people have always talked, like the guys that covered Popovich in the league, like the San Antonio reporters, always said he was a great guy. I always found him annoying. I always found him annoying. He's got a lot of Aaron Rodgers in him. Yeah, he's he was not pleasant. He was always acerbic and just kind of sarcastic and, and cocky. I'm it's, like, dude, you coached at Pomona. There's a Come condescending on. talking down to you kind of way with Popovich 
that I don't even really get from Belichick. Belichick just doesn't want to be there. Popovich is like, well, I'm here, and let me remind you, you, sir, know nothing. I don't want to be there. I think Pete Carroll would be a fun Jeopardy host. What about Gruden? Yeah, Pete, Pete would, would be, be funny. Very fun. Pete would be very, very fun. Who? Oh, hey, Pete, guys. Pete, Pete's the only one capable of sarcasm of that Gruden. <laughs> Gruden, no. I've had enough Gruden in my life. Do you feel like when you see him coaching, I just immediately assume he's talking like he did in the booth at Monday Night Football? I wish that I believed that, but I know he's being two-faced on the field. Oh, because, completely. Right. He's completely. Like, he grinds on players. There's no doubt about That's that. That's why I didn't like him in the booth. It's like, be authentic, dude. Instead yeah. of being this, like, sunshine BS guy that you are clearly not based off of everyone's, you know, account of you. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite Gruden story was when they traded for Jake Plummer. When they traded for Jake Plummer from the Vikings, and he's like, nope, I quit. Not playing for that dude. I'm going to go play racquetball in Idaho. I always think that Gruden, when he's smiling, it looks like his face doesn't know how. Like he's, It's like this scowl smile. smile. It makes me laugh. His face is confused when he smiles. Child's play Chucky. Also, why can't he wear a hat normally? Like, Have you, have you guys watched how, how the hat looks on the sidelines? I couldn't stop Doesn't looking at this. Doesn't he wear a visor? No, it's a, it's a it's usually a hat with a snapback. It looks like he has uh-huh. doll's hair. Like where the hair in the back it's it it's not the hat is never pulled down. There's always some of these strands that are sticking through the opening. That's, that's why he's Chucky, man. Everyone everyone compares him to Chucky from Child's Play. That's another it, example. But it doesn't look natural. Like I don't think he I don't think he has a toupee, but it's like that stuff has been bleached to the point that it's straw. Like it doesn't look like human hair anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't stop staring at it. It freaked me out. It's Danny Galan. Our training camp coverage and hair tips brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. Joint practices would certainly be a lot more mellow if they involved joints. Why did people get so carried away yesterday? We'll talk about the fights we saw. That's ahead. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Squab, 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 squab. Something I like to hear chanted in the midst of a fight. We saw a lot of fights yesterday, Danny, at joint practices in training camps across the National Football League. So we mentioned this yesterday because the Seahawks don't do joint practices. I... Fights are an issue when when you have when you have two teams that that practice against each other, and maybe some of this is that I remember from the '90s when you had coaches who, like Jerry Glanville and Buddy Ryan, kind of liked their teams fighting in training camp. Like they didn't. I, I don't. I don't want to say that they encouraged it, but they certainly didn't discourage it. And you would see actually significant fights when teams would would scrimmage against each other. And one of the reasons is because if you fight in an NFL game, you do end up getting fined. And dudes don't want to lose money. If you fight in practice, it's a question of, A, does your team choose to fine you? And B, even if they do, do they enforce the fine? So I think it's it's harder to keep players from fighting in practice when they're going to get up against another team than it is in a game. Yeah, no doubt about it. And these situations unfold pretty quickly. It's also probably the first time that you're going up against guys who aren't your teammates. Maybe some pent-up frustration. The first of the fights that we will discuss that took place yesterday was in the second and final day of joint practices between Tennessee and Tampa Bay. Antonio Brown, uh uh-oh, 
doing Antonio Brown things again. He was thrown out of practice after a one-on-one drill with Titans cornerback Chris Jackson. He ripped off Jackson's helmet, and then bam, pow, right in the kisser. But after practice, it's Bruce Arians' reaction to it that's definitely unique among all the reactions you're about to hear. The fighting? I didn't say anything. I didn't say any fighting. A lot of pushing and shoving. I didn't say any fist throwing. Even Antonio Brown? Nah, no. Waving flies. <laughs> Waving flies. Snitches get stitches, I guess, in the mind of Bruce Arians. But there's legitimately a photo that captured a still image of Antonio Brown's right fist connecting with Chris Jackson. I'm sorry, Mr. Jackson. I, I give him credit, man. Antonio Brown, that was great execution. I've, I always think it's dumb when people punch someone with a helmet on. Yeah. Like, why, why are you going to? He removed the helmet and socked him in the jaw. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it was effective, like, good strategy. Like, when Runet Odor clopped, clocked Joey Batista, like, that was, I was like, man, he faked him with the glove and then caught him with a roundhouse. Like, yeah, that was good delivery by Antonio Brown. Good delivery by Antonio Brown, par for the course with Antonio Brown as well. Arian's reaction to it. Are you annoyed by it? Do you think that's the appropriate reaction to a fight that takes place in training camp? Because I know that this is not the most Bruce Arians-friendly time slot historically. I hate the excuses he makes. Like, that's what I hate. And if he's just like, I'm not worried about that fight, I I think that's a totally fine reaction. I think we ask coaches to get fake concerned about a fight. When it's like, dudes fight. It happens. And if you're a coach, you can decide, do you want your team fighting during practice or do you not want your team fighting during practice? But the idea that you're supposed to like, oh, you can't do that in a game. Like, tell them not to do it in a game then. It's not a game. It's practice. We sit in here talking about practice, not a game. We talking about practice. Practice fights. Speaking of practice fights, there was another one at Rams Raiders joint practice. One that Sean McVay, perhaps, was squeamish about theatrically. But what took place was a brawl, punches, thrown helmets, four starts and stops, and eventually John Gruden sent his player to the buses to end the day of practices yesterday. Here is John Gruden weighing in on how that practice went. I thought we had a great work today until special teams, right at the end of the special teams period. I have no idea what that was, but... That's enough of that crap. You know, it's not good for football. It's not good for anything. So uh, that's the end of that. That's the end of that practice session. Mm. <laughs> See, I love it. I Yeah. If we had a whole show where we just listened to coaches talk about fights, I'd listen to it because I'm like, do you think Gruden's mad about is he, is he mad because they didn't get it does keep work from getting done. Do you think he was mad because the other team fought and he did he thought they picked it? Is he mad at his own players? Like, all of those are, like, I'd like to try and figure out. It, it, it's just like, who are these slappies that are out there fighting? The guys that are inconsequential to this team are keeping us from doing actual stuff, and I'm done. I'm tired of it. The, the part about it not being good for football, it's fine for football. Fighting's fine for football. Fighting's okay. Fighting's go- fine in sports. It's just don't get hurt. I mean, right? That's, that's, that's the big eh. thing. Ah, <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with it either because I think for the most part, the, these fights aren't actually fights. They're shoving matches in, in football. And when these guys are wearing all that armor, essentially, you know, what, what, what's really going to happen outside of, as you mentioned, if someone's throwing a punch at somebody wearing a helmet? We've progressed to a point where society now tells, tells us that fighting is bad. 
I don't think that's necessarily true. Washington state law doesn't think that's necessarily true either. and And I say this as someone who is not a very good fighter, would not consider myself accomplished or proficient at it, and has done many things that would warrant being socked in the jaw. Some Sometimes it has happened. But that can be a useful deterrent. The NBA is a worse product because they have outlawed fighting. And it has enabled people who are hemorrhoids instead of basketball players, people like Patrick Beverly, from behaving and doing things that are dirty, that are cheap and that would get you punched on a playground. And because you can't punch that person in the NBA because after David Stern levied massive suspension and basically legislated against fighting, it's it has created this entire tier of defensive pests embodied by Bowen and Beverly. Like the the elimination of fighting in sports is not a universal good. I like the defensive pest, though, and I do think that I, Beverly would hold his own. He's from Chicago. I, I, the other guys, I'm not so sure. Beverly is someone Fine. I know. Then let him fight. I, I don't, let him fight. I don't disagree with you on that front. I would love to see Russell Westbrook, if he's losing yeah, his mind, exactly. go up and against he can't, Patrick And he Beverly. can't do it. Instead, Patrick Beverly does things that would get you socked on a playground, and maybe he'd win the fight, and maybe he wouldn't. But the point is, in the NBA, you can't punch anybody anymore, and it's made, it, it is, it is uh, ennobled and emboldened a tier of defensive hemorrhoids. You can't really do it as much in hockey anymore, and we're going to find that right. out with the Seattle Kraken this year, but it used to be, I mean, that was what hockey had on every single other sport. Sure, there's referees, but the sport actually polices itself. If you are some chippy little you-know-what, like, for example, Boston's Brad Marchand, people are going to come after you, and you might have to face old-fashioned street justice from a couple of fists at some point. You don't see it as much anymore, but still it is there in some way, shape, or form. You're right about it in basketball. Because there is a lot of this hold-me-back, fake, fake nonsense that takes place. And I would imagine that every now and then, too, like two guys actually being able to go after one another would resolve some serious issues that take place on the court. But the problem, I think, is, Danny, that when the malice at the palace happened, the NBA was like, oh, well, we can't afford to be perceived in one way or another. Like, Don't you feel like they're – obviously it changed, too, with uh, Rudy Tomjanovich getting punched in the face by Kermit Washington and almost dying. Yeah, I think there's a huge discussion about why that happened that way. Let's let's talk about that a little bit next because there's been a great documentary on the malice at the palace. How have we viewed fighting and how has that changed over the years? And then we'll also get back to the Mariners and count down some of the landmark victories of this season. It is Danny and Gallant here, 710 ESPN Seattle.